0: Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. which, By the way, uh, we just read, uh, had read for us. We read together Philippians chapter 1, and there's just a few more chapters, a couple more chapters in that book. If you've never read an entire book of the Bible, let me encourage you to go home and pick up in chapter 2 and read. And I think you'll be encouraged and surprised at the, the blessings that God has for you in something simple like that. Today and next Sunday, we're going to give our attention to some life-giving truth found in Philippians 1. And I've been praying that our time together here in uh, Philippians 1 is going to help us recommit and be re-energized as a church family in pursuing our mission together. In case you've forgotten, the purpose of Highlands Baptist Church is, uh, we say it this way, it's to display God's glory by making disciples through the gospel of grace. You'll find this posted on our website, you'll see this, church members, if you look at your picture directory on the front cover of your picture directory, you'll see this purpose statement, this mission statement printed there as a reminder of why we as a church family exist. From time to time it's good for us to be reminded of the reason why we are gathering, why we exist as a church family, and I wonder where in the Bible you might turn to defend or prove that statement, that we exist to display God's glory. Where might you turn in your Bibles? You might have a couple of passages that come to mind. Does the Bible instruct churches to do this? Should churches be focused on displaying God's glory? The answer to that question is yes. Okay, We don't have a uh, a misguided mission statement. We do have a scriptural mission statement. One of the places in the scriptures where we can find that mission statement is in Philippians 1. If you're a church member here or a regular attender here, you are going to be aware that we're in a time of leadership transition. In a few months' time, our lead pastor will be transitioning into an exciting new missionary training endeavor. Your elder team is diligently working and praying, and we as a church family are all praying for God's clear guidance and for his provision for a next lead pastor. But while this is happening, I want to remind us that we have not lost our purpose or our mission as a church. We are not in a sort of in-between time where we kind of are kind of just treading water, waiting for what's coming next. We're, we're, we have not lost our purpose and mission that God has granted us. Our mission and purpose are not uncertain. God has a mission. His mission has a church, and we as Christ church are part of that mission. We as Christ Church have this exciting and deeply meaningful purpose that we get to joyfully and faithfully pursue together no matter what might be happening in or around us. And so today, I want to help us kind of re-energize with some zeal and some clarity about our commitment to this simple mission of displaying God's glory. We're going to do that by looking into Philippians 1. And the specific portion of Scripture in Philippians 1 we're going to look at is verses 27 through 30. Before we begin to unpack that specific section, I want to do a drive-by overview of the Apostle Paul's context and flow leading up to this passage because I think the weight and the significance of his command in verse 27 stands on the shoulders of the instruction that he gave previously in chapter 1. So we understand that Paul is writing to Christians that are living in risky times. He writes this letter while he is imprisoned himself. He uh, is writing to the church in Philippi, which is also facing persecution. You notice in verse 12 of chapter 1 that Paul assures his readers that his imprisonment is not hindering the advance of the gospel, which already gives us an indication of the preoccupation and the emphasis that is in Paul's mind as he's writing to these Christians. They're concerned about Paul, this, this trainer, this effective gift of God to Christ's church, being imprisoned. It seems like he's being hindered from doing the work that God has called him to do. And Paul writes and says, actually, the reverse is happening. God is actually advancing the message of the gospel through his imprisonment. His arrest and imprisonment have actually served to advance the gospel, not hinder it. As a result of his imprisonment in verse 12, Paul reports that it has come known throughout the whole imperial guard, that's the elite guard, that he is imprisoned for Christ, that he is an ambassador of Jesus, of the gospel. And as a result also, verse 14, other Christians have heard of Paul's imprisonment, have heard of the advance of the gospel, and have themselves become more bold to speak the truth of the gospel without fear. So instead of the gospel being hindered, his imprisonment has actually resulted in the advance of the gospel through the boldness of others and through the spread of why he is imprisoned in the imperial guard. And so despite all of this imprisonment and all this opposition, the gospel just keeps marching on. The good news of Jesus keeps spreading. It's like the light beam of God's glory in the gospel of Christ is shining further and further into the darkness of this world. And to summarize what Paul is saying here, he he is basically describing that whether he is free or whether he is imprisoned, what matters most is the advance of the gospel. What matters most is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ being spread further and further. And then in verse 19, he continues and he shares some of his inner thoughts about his life and the threat of death that he's living under as a prisoner of Rome. He knows that his only hope of release is God answering the prayers of Christians. But whether he lives or whether he dies, Christ being honored, is his focus. That's in verse 20 when he says, Christ will be honored in my body. This is his aim. Whether he's alive or whether he's dead, he wants Christ to be honored. And so by Paul's reckoning, if he lives, it's for Christ. And if the worst happens to him and he dies, well, that's actually to his advantage in verse 23 because then he gets to be with Christ, which he is certain is far better. So again, the central driving motivation for whatever the outcome might be, whether life or death for Paul, is Christ, the honor of Christ, the spread of the gospel of Christ. If he lives, he wants to honor Christ. If he dies, he is looking forward to enjoying Christ. But he's convinced that God's going to keep him alive, verse 25. And so Paul shares his plan for what he aims to do with the remainder of his life. And he aims to, verse 25, to continue for their progress of joy in the faith so that they may have ample cause to, here it is, glory in Christ Jesus. So here again we see Paul's preoccupation with Jesus. Whether in prison, whether free, whether alive, whether dead, what matters most is the glory of Jesus Christ, verse 26. So I hope we can begin to see how our mission statement, that we exist to display the glory of Christ, to showcase that through the gospel of grace, I hope we can begin to see how Philippians 1 keeps returning back to this idea, this, this central preoccupation with the advance of the gospel of Jesus, with the shedding, the, the shining of the glory of Christ. And this preoccupation is what flows into then the text that we have before us in verse 27 and on through 30. In verse 27, Paul shifts his attention from himself and moves his attention to the predicament of his readers. He gives them a command in verse 27, you can see it there. He says, "Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ." Here we are again, <laughs> okay? Back to Christ, back to his gospel, back to the advance of it. And so this command is the main idea of verses 27 to 30. And so the sermon today is going to first be explaining the meaning of this command. And then we're going to look at the results of obeying it. Or in other words, what does it mean or what does it look like to have a life that is living, that is being worthy, that we're living worthy of the gospel of Christ. So first, the command, you see it there in verse 27, Christians must live worthy of the gospel. The wording that Paul uses in this command is significant, especially when we consider the Christians that he's writing to in Philippi. The city of Philippi was a Roman colony, and they were intensely proud of that privilege. They were proud of the benefits that they enjoyed because they were a Roman colony. Some of those benefits would have been like they would have Roman law and local affairs. Sometimes they would have exemption from tribute and taxation. Transfers of land, local administration, and law functioned in Philippi as if they were in Rome on Italian soil. Their status as a Roman colony was a source of great civic pride for the residents of Philippi. Why does this matter? Well, Paul uses a Greek term in verse 27 for citizenship. It's rendered in the ESV, in our translation, as manner of life. But when the, when the, the, the Christian in Philippi would have heard, would have read the, that word, they would have been immediately thinking about citizenship and it would have connected with the pride that they had in their Roman citizenship. And what Paul is doing is he's drawing on that pride and he's saying he's urging them to live first and foremost as citizens of God's kingdom. Yes, they're citizens of a Roman kingdom and they take pride in that, but Paul wants their emphasis, their preoccupation, not to be on their Roman citizenship, which was natural for them in Philippi. He is reminding them they are first and foremost supremely citizens of God's kingdom the kingdom of the gospel of Christ. And by the way, this term gospel is repeated six times in chapter 1 alone. And if you're not a Christian, you might be wondering what this term means. It sounds very Christian-y. It sounds very spiritually. You'd expect to hear the word gospel in a church, right? What does this mean? Well, in the Christian scriptures, the term gospel refers to the good news. The good news of Jesus Christ who died to save sinners and rose to conquer death. In the gospel, we learn that Jesus... The Christ, God sent one, came into the world to die for our sins and he rose again to give us eternal life. And he offers us forgiveness and everlasting joy to everyone who will put their hope in him for their eternal future. This is the gospel. This is the news that Paul wants to be spread further and further, that he's willing to live or die, be free or imprisoned, whatever it takes. He wants this message to be spread further and further and to advance. The advance of this message The glory of Christ is what drives everything that Paul is doing and he wants his readers to share in this common purpose with him. So then, in verse 27, Paul urges his readers of the essential importance of living a life that's aligned with the advance of this message. This is why he uses the word only. Summarizing it down to just, here's what's essential, here's what's non-negotiable for you as Christians to, to live in accord with. Let your lives be worthy of the gospel. You might wonder, well, what does that look like? How do we know if we have a life that is worthy of the gospel? Well, we'll get to that soon, but for now I'd just like to ask us to think about our perspective on our citizenship. Do we remember that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom? Does your life give evidence of eternal values or do you value most of the things that this, of this earthly world order? Christians are an odd lot. We live in this world but we're not of this world. We are living for another world. If if you're not a Christian it may you may be hearing things that sound very like sci-fi, far-fetched kind of fantasy like all these people are living for this fantasy but Christians are persuaded from this Christians from the scriptures that this is not a fantasy. This is real. Jesus is real. He lived, he died, he rose again and he's promised eternal life to all who embrace him by faith. He put all their hope for an eternal future in him. We are citizens of another kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. Do we remember that? Do we remember that? So, for instance, let's just kind of be real practical here. How do you treat those with whom you disagree? Do you treat them in accordance with the values of the kingdom of this world? Or do you interact with those with whom you disagree with the values of a heavenly kingdom? How do you respond to those who mistreat you? Do you respond with the values of this earthly kingdom? Or do you give evidence that you are a heavenly citizen by the way you respond to those who mistreat you? Do you forgive others? That would be heavenly citizenship. Or do you mistreat and hold on to grudges long? That would be an earthly kingdom. Well, why does this matter? Well, it matters because Christians should live worthy of the Gospel of Christ because the advance of the Gospel of Christ in a sin-darkened world matters. Friends, the world needs the good news. They need this. This world is dark. This world is is dying. This world is condemned. And they need to hear the message of Christ who gave His life, who was crucified, who was buried and took upon Himself the condemnation for our sin and was risen again from the grave and will come again one day. They need this message. And so Paul, in ages past, whether he lived, whether he died, what matters most is the glory of Jesus. And so it should be for us the advance of the gospel. We should have a life as a church that's aligned to live worthy of this gospel. Well, what does that look like? Well, Paul, in this passage, verse 27 and following, he gives three marks of what it means to live worthy of the gospel. Verse 27, you'll see, he uses the phrase, standing firm in one spirit. That's one mark. In verse 27, the second mark, he uses the phrase, with one mind, striving for the faith of the gospel. Striving for the faith of the gospel. That's the second mark. And the third mark you'll find in verse 28, when he describes them as not being frightened in anything by their opponents. So we're going to unpack the meaning of those three marks. What I'm going to do, though, is combine the first two because it seems like Paul is trying to do that. When he says standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So I'm going to put it this way. Living worthy of the gospel requires tenacious Christian unity. Tenacious Christian unity. The unity is found in the phrase standing firm in one spirit. And the tenacity is found in the words striving for the faith of the gospel. What does it mean to stand firm in one spirit? Well, our world would like us to think it's kind of this kumbaya moment, right? We're all gathered around a fire, humming a tune we all know, holding hands, just pretending that everything is hunky dory. But that's really thin and very really fragile. Paul has something much more robust in mind here standing firm in one spirit. These terms, standing firm, would have been kind of military-like terms of a phalanx of, of, of soldiers standing with kind of in lockstep, with, with kind of a shield wall. What they, can, what they can do together, united in their defense, is much greater than what they could do on their own. It's that kind of idea. There is some debate with scholars upon the word spirit there in the text. You notice the ESV renders it with a small s. Other translations put a capital S there. There's some debate. Is this the the spirit, the sense of the common unity of our shared kind of the spirit of us as a people? Or is it a a kind of a recognition of we stand united in the spirit of God, in the unity of the capital S spirit? I think it's probably a bit of both. Because the unity that Christians have in our spirit, little s, is derived because of the unity that we've been given by God's spirit himself. That's why Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 12. He says to those Christians in Corinth, for in one Spirit, capital S, we were baptized into one body. So the unity we share as a church family is anchored, is created by the unity that we have been given in the Spirit of God. Or Ephesians 4.4, there is one body and one Spirit, capital S. So according to Paul here in Philippians 1, Christian unity is isn't important because it makes life better, more peaceful, more harmonic. You know, nobody's arguing or fighting. We're just kind of all together. Although that would be true in the sense of there's peace, right? But Christian unity matters because it is one way we live worthy of the gospel. It is one way that the gospel is advanced in our communities. Christian unity matters because that is one way that God uses to advance the spread of the gospel. What does this mean for us? well, we'll only be able to display God's glory inasmuch as we are standing firm in one spirit around Christ. This means, then, that Christians are not people who are united around a political party or a shared sense of national pride. We are not. Christians are not uniting around ethnicity or economic status or the school choices we make for our children or you fill in the blank of any other current event or issue. Christians are united Around Christ. Living worthy of the gospel means we unite around the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We stand firm in the fact that we are sinners, saved by grace. That changes how we relate to one another and how we relate to those in our world. We stand firm in the fact that we have been saved by grace through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. None of us have saved ourselves. None of us can save ourselves. No religious expression can save us, Jesus saves. Is this what unites you? Is there something else that excites you more or gets you more stirred up than the centrality of the gospel of Christ here in Highlands Baptist Church? If there is, Philippians 1 is warning us that we are losing, that we would be at threat of losing one of the means, one of the marks whereby we can fulfill our mission as a church to display the glory of God through the advance of the gospel. Notice in verse 27, Paul tells us readers to be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That term striving is used elsewhere in scriptures to describe an athletic contest. Some of you get up in the morning and strive, right? You do a workout. Some of you just getting up in the morning and striving all alone, Right? There's a sense of exertion, of work. But it also, because in the context, it's not just striving in this individual athletic contest. Not like we as Christians are all in kind of our own spiritual Olympic event, trying to get our own gold medal on our own. No, in Philippians Philippians 1, the word striving is anchored in the whole context of unity. We're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It carries with it this tenacious, enduring effort that is focused on a shared goal. That's what's important. We're not really in a relay race, each kind of running our own. We are in a way, I was trying to think of a good illustration, we're kind of all in this big tug of war. We're all hanging onto the rope, pulling together for the faith of the gospel. So a church then that lives worthy of the gospel, according to Paul here in Philippians 1, is united in their effort to strive together for the faith of the gospel. So here's our question, do we? I think we do, in part, I do. But I think God has more for us. I believe we are striving for the faith of the gospel every Sunday that we gather in worship. I think we've been striving in a way even this morning, just us pushing against the cultural norms of our day when Sunday is considered basically a second Saturday we do is we say, no, we're going to order our lives around Jehovah God. And we're going to give worship and attention and praise and adoration to the one who has saved us and given us a purpose for life that reaches into eternity. We strive together. We strive together when we sing. We strive together when we serve. Whether it's in nursery or children's ministry or greeting or hospitality or sound booth or music team or youth group or building maintenance or ground maintenance and on and on the list can go. All of these are ways that we strive together for the faith of the gospel. Our generous giving to support the ministry of the word, that the gospel can be preached here in Centennial and Littleton and Highlands Ranch, that the gospel is proclaimed week after week through our gathering, through the preaching ministry. This is a way that we strive for the faith of the gospel. We financially and prayerfully support foreign missions. That's another way that we are striving together, uniting our efforts and prayers and our giving To support the the advance of the gospel in foreign lands and foreign nations. A question for us in Philippians 1, then, that we can ask ourselves individually is how are you striving for the faith of the gospel? How are you? Now, there's other ways to do it. It doesn't have to happen here, only in the halls of this building on a Sunday morning. It should be happening outside in the week. Maybe you strive for the faith of the gospel by hosting a home group or being involved in a home group, putting attention and time into other Christians, specific Christians, to know them and be known by them to do them spiritual good. Maybe you strive for the faith of the gospel by trying to find creative ways to engage in winsome ways with the gospel in your neighborhood, in your communities, in your workplace, with your families. Christian family, I believe there are more ways that we have not yet discovered where we can strive together for the faith of the gospel. Would you pray about this? Would you ask God for ideas and unity and a willingness for us as a church family to strive together for the faith of the gospel in new ways so that we can be ministry partners with Paul, so to speak, just separated by a few years, right? To see the advance of the gospel. So a mark of living worthy of the gospel is this tenacious Christian unity. But there's one other mark And it's found in verse 28. And I'm going to say it this way. Living worthy of the gospel requires Christian courage. Verse 28 says, Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Striving together for the faith of the gospel won't be without opposition. Paul knows this firsthand. In fact, in Acts 16 Luke records some of what Paul experienced in his own striving for the faith of the gospel when he was in Philippi. Paul and Silas arrived in Philippi and they spoke about Christ. They found some women, it says, and one of the women was named Lydia. She was a seller of purple. She heard the gospel and Luke tells us that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She embraced the gospel. She comes to faith in Christ, Acts 16, verse 14. But things got rowdy after that. There was a slave girl in the city who was a sort of fortune teller and her handlers were profiting off of her, off of this ability and apparently this, this fortune telling um, ability was some sort of evil spirit that was troubling her and it seemed that that was enabling her to do this. Paul is, she keeps coming up and interacting and interrupting and Paul eventually, almost in some exasperation, just calls out and, and delivers her through the gospel message of this evil spirit, she was set free in Christ, which ended her fortune-telling days. This enraged her owners, enraged them, because their financial gains disappeared. And so they filed suit against Paul. They brought charges against Paul and Silas. A crowd begins to riot. They began attacking Paul and Silas. The city officials had them beaten with rods and thrown into prison. This is when Paul and Silas at midnight began praying and singing. You know the story, some Christians, right? You know some, of the, some of you know the story. They begin praying and singing to God, which, by the way, is striving for the faith of the gospel. Um, An earthquake comes, shakes the prison, opens the cell doors. The jailer's about to take his life because he'll be held responsible for all who escape. They say, don't do it. They give him the gospel. He confesses faith in Christ and their jailer begins to treat their wounds. The next morning, city officials order Paul and Silas to be quietly released. Paul objects. He's a citizen of Rome. He's in a He's in a Roman colony. He has civil rights that have, been, that have been denied him. And so he tells them this, and the city magistrates are fearful. They're in a, they're in a big issue now, a big legal issue, because they have just uh, hindered a Roman citizen's right to civic duty there, uh, to, to due process there in that Roman colony. So the city officials apologize and ask them, just please leave the city. And so Paul and Silas have one more conference with some Christians there, and then they depart to Thessalonica. I read us through that because when Paul writes about opposition, this is not theory. He's in prison. He, 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 he firsthand knows what it was when they brought the gospel into this Roman colony. And he's writing to Christians that remain. He knows that it's a hostile place for Christians. Because it's not just that, it, it's the, the, the national pride in Philippi was high. And for them to be followers of Jesus meant that they were actually not patriotic. Because to be a Roman was to uh, pledge allegiance to Caesar as Lord. And they're talking about Jesus as Lord. And so in Philippi, when you're, when you're a Christian, it wasn't just you're kind of spiritually weird because you're not, you're not you're monotheistic, you're, poly, you're not polytheistic like what, what they are. The Romans called Christians atheists because they didn't, Christians didn't believe in all these other gods. They believed in the one God, Jesus. And so there was this massive... Opposition that those Christians in Philippi would have faced just through the political pressure, through the, the patriotic pressure, so to speak, there in that colony. And so, Paul, when he's writing about opposition and persecution, it wasn't theoretical. He knew what they faced, he had faced it himself. He's personally aware of how painful and fearful opposition can be. But how can Christians not be sinfully fearful in the face of opposition? Paul gives them a strategy in verse 28. Again, he wants them to have a life that's marked by being worthy of the gospel. And one of those marks is standing unfrightened in the face of opposition to the gospel. In verse 28, he says, Not frightened in anything by your opponents. How is that possible, Paul? Here's how he says it. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Verse 28 is a bit of a pickle. Because the words, their destruction, their, the word there, T-H-E-I-R, the word there that is there, it's not trying to confuse us, right? You see it there? (laughs) There it is again. Um, That's not in the actual translation. So the translators are trying to convey what is Paul's meaning. It could be that the opposition that they are giving those Christians because they oppose the gospel, that is an evidence that they have rejected Christ. If you reject Christ, you stand condemned. That's, that's the Christian gospel. Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. If you reject the gospel, you stand condemned. You will be destroyed under God's wrath. But if you embrace Christ, you're delivered. That's the wonder of the gospel message. So it could be that Paul is saying, because they oppose you, that is a sign that they are destined for destruction because they reject Christ. They're opposing the good advance of the gospel. And then it says, but of your salvation, since you are standing firm against opposition to the gospel, you're trying to spread it, that is a sign of your salvation. It shows that you truly are a born-again believer. It truly shows that you are a child of the faith because you will not stand for you will not be a, you will not stand for persecution of the faith if you if for the faith if you are not of the faith right if it's just a good idea if it's just politically expedient if it just kind of helps you get along in life you're going to abandon that as soon as it starts to cost you dearly and the fact that they are standing firm against opposition is proof that they truly are the people of the gospel or it could mean this this is a clear sign to them of destruction but of salvation and that from God. It could mean this. That their counterparts, their unbelieving counterparts in Philippi, are looking at them and saying to these Christians, You guys are nuts. If you keep living like this, if you keep following Jesus, this town is gonna to chew you up. This town is gonna to, gonna we're gonna to try to kill you because you are a threat to what we enjoy as a Roman colony. You are you are pushing against our our worship and our political sense of civic duty and pride to Caesar. And you Christians are nuts. You're going to be destroyed. It could have been that too. But either way, I guess the outcome is kind of the same, right? Because it all hinges upon how, did, how do people respond to Jesus? How do people respond to the good news of Christ? So, a sign of salvation to those who face opposition. This is so counterintuitive to our Western American ears, right? But they would, Paul is actually encouraging them, don't be frightened because the fact that you stand firm against opposition... Should encourage you that you know God. It should help you hold fast against opposition. This is so contrary to our Western American ears because we do everything we can to avoid hardship, to avoid trouble, right? But only those of the faith will suffer persecution for the faith. So in verse 29, Paul gives some truth that when believed we're going to help Christians stand courageously in the face of this opposition. He says, for it has been granted. Here's another reason how they can stand without fear against this opposition. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Again, this wording is so foreign to our to our Western American ears. Literally in verse 29, the words that are used there, we, we understand God is gracious, right? He gives us salvation. He's so gracious to give us this good thing of forgiveness of sin and being redeemed out of sin and being declared righteous, justified, and being called His child. He's so gracious to give that to us, isn't He? It's the same wording of graciously giving that here's what Paul assigns to. God has graciously given you suffering. Stand firm. Don't be fearful. God, this is a gift of God to you, this opposition. Now, it makes us kind of scratch our heads, right? It doesn't mean that opposition is intrinsically good. Paul and Silas being beaten was bad, it was wrong. But what Paul is saying here in verse 29 is it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, we're saved, praise God, hooray, but also suffer for his sake. Friends, we need to really consider God's truth for us in verse 29. The grace of God that delivers us from our sin and condemnation is the same grace that gives us suffering for His sake. In fact, as you read through Acts, you're going to come across phrase after phrase that kind of summarizes the experience of those apostles as they spread the gospel through that area, that region of the world when it would say they would go away from being persecuted or beaten or imprisoned or falsely accused, and it says they praised God that they were considered worthy to suffer for Christ. There was a glory of the Gospel that had captured them. And they thought, I'll suffer for it. This is a silly illustration, but imagine if you were at a sporting event and you were, the, you were, you were cheering for not the home team. all right? And you were sitting there in your team's colors Waving they don't teams don't have flags. Uh, yeah, they do. Waving the colors of your team, okay? And you're cheering for your team that's not the home team. You're surrounded, I see some of you smiling like you've had this experience. You're surrounded by all of them, okay? What's happening here is it's like the idea of you're just so proud that you are standing for that team, you're cheering it on and they're throwing stuff at you, they're hurling insults at you and you're like, I'm just so glad I'm I'm cheering for that team. I know it's a silly, but Christians, we are a little outpost of God's kingdom. This isn't our home field. We're the guests in this arena. And we're standing here and we're facing opposition. And Paul is assuring these Christians, don't lose heart. Live worthy of the gospel. Here's one of the ways you can do it. Stand firm against opposition. Don't be frightened. Where are we going to find that strength, Paul? Just just understand that as you stand firm against opposition, that's a sign, that's a symbol, that's an assurance that you truly belong to God. And after all, God has graciously given you the gift to suffer for Christ. Suffering for the sake of the gospel is not a sign of God's displeasure. It's actually a gift from God meant to assure us of salvation. And when he does there at the last turn of phrase there in verse 30, he says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. He identifies with his readers in the fact that they both are sharing opposition for the gospel. When a church family stands firm in Christian unity, when we strive together for the faith of the gospel, when we do not live in fear of persecution, here's what happens. The glory of God in the gospel of Christ is displayed like the lights of a city set on a hill. Which means we start to fulfill our purpose. This is what God is calling us to be. We have not lost this mission. It's not on pause. It's not delayed. Christian family... God is calling us into this, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, standing firm in the unity of the Spirit, not frightened by the opposition that might come. I'll ask the music team to come forward and get ready to lead us in our hymn of response. How has God spoken to you through Philippians 1? How can you strengthen the unity of this church family around the gospel? What steps can you take? What behaviors can you engage in? What, what mindfulness must you pursue? What prayers should you utter to God this week that we can have a strong unity around the faith of the gospel? How can you strive with this church family for the faith of the gospel?